Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. Hi, Ram. Thank you so much for joining me today again on the Business of Healthcare podcast. This is a re-recording, so I thank you so much. I know you're busy. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I wanted you on. You are a healthcare entrepreneur specialising in digital transformation and you are the founder and CEO of Chai Analytics. Please could you share with our listeners um, what Chai Analytics does and what led you to founding this company? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yes, as you said, I'm the founder of Chinalytics. So we're, we're an early stage startup. So we only started in January this year. And our mission is to unlock the value of data and to drive data-driven decision-making in the NHS and healthcare as a whole. You know, we're, we're kind of proud that we, we fa- we're founded in the philosophies and principles of the NHS and we're starting in the NHS, but we're not kind of stopping our ambition there. So my story, I'm a electrical electronic engineer by background. It's, it kind of started in a very technical space, but I've been fortunate enough to kind of work across multiple industries. So I've worked in finance, oil and gas, aerospace, and the last 12 years, very specifically, I've been working in and around the NHS and healthcare. I mean, the reason why I'm doing this, the golden thread across all those career choices was data and technology. And the reason I I guess I chose to mention those multiple industries is is kind of the journey that took me to founding Chinalytics. There's there's a lot that can be learned by looking at other industries for inspiration. And uh, at least in, in my experience, the critical role of that data can play in two things, one in decision-making, but going back to our mission, and in predicting demand. So I kind of stress-tested tested that a little bit during my time at GE, where I was the, uh, the EMEA lead for analytics for GE's clinical command center solution. And I saw firsthand how drawing inspiration from other industries to use advanced AI-driven analytics can transform healthcare. But, but the, I experienced kind of firsthand the challenges of of driving this type of innovation due to two things. So data privacy regulations and data quality. I'm sure the listeners will will kind of have experience good and bad in terms of trying to wrangle both of these areas from an analytical perspective. So this is, in in short, this is the challenge that we at China Analytics are trying to address. And, And our vision being that we want to be the enablers of what I call collective innovation. So kind of sum of parts type of innovation where we're promoting the philosophy of data for all. And what we're doing is we're trying to create solutions and products that facilitate the collection and preparation and sharing of healthcare data so that innovators and researchers can focus on the innovating and researching effectively rather than the data preparation and data collection. So to that end, what we have developed or in the process of developing is what we're calling our open data platform, which is in short a 
a secure cloud-based data preparation and sharing platform that complies with data privacy regulations, but enables almost instant access to openly shareable, analysis-ready, high-quality data that innovators and, and research can use to drive their vision effectively. So when you say data for all, are you saying, so a bit like a phone, if I see the data, you know, like you take your phone out of the box and you kind of just know how to use it, you know what it does. Are you saying that if I work in primary care or secondary care, your platform will will present me some patient data or capacity data and it will be it will be easy to read and understand and interpret? Somewhat. So I, I guess data for all is my, my version of what folk might recognize as open data. So okay. it's more around the philosophy of giving folk access to data as widely as possible so that you can get the most insights from it. So collective wisdom. So the platform they were developing somewhat will help to simplify the data, but is more focused on the data prep steps. So in terms of like things like getting the quality, cleansing the data, filling in the gaps, that kind of stuff, so that so that you have data that's ready to be analyzed, played around with, apply your machine, uh, train and validate your machine learning algorithms, so on and so forth. That makes sense. Okay. Are you looking at the moment at a specific set of data? Yes, great question. So we are starting very specifically on well, NHS data, but very specifically on on activity data sets. So clinical-based activity data sets. So folk might recognize the term HES or SUS. So effectively, it's your A&E, inpatient, outpatient, essentially activity and clinical data. That makes sense. Okay. However, it should, it should be something that we can apply universally. And I'm sure we'll come on to this, but it, the reason why we started there is very much how the solution itself developed, which was we we had the same problem in terms of getting that access to data. So we we built the solution for ourselves and quickly realized that we weren't alone in this. Okay. So we've had conversations, um, <laughs> a couple of conversations now, where we were talking about, I suppose like when you talk about activity, if we talk about d- demand and capacity, and that it, it feels like in any warp of any business context, you have demand and capacity. And I used to work at McDonald's and I feel like, a long, long time ago now, how we managed our stock patients and labour, we just had a, it was just a basic dashboard, but we were always looking and we could, it was sophisticated enough to know that this time last year or this time last month, we would need this many, um, we need these many people doing this particular certain uh, particular roles and we need this amount of stock and if we didn't have the people we would call up other stores if we didn't have the stock we would know if we'd running low we would know if the other store was running low it feels like if fast food can do it if Deliveroo can do it if fashion can do it why are we not doing it better in health you might kind of realize that we've we've kind of almost moved on a little bit from the from our initial conversation, which I'm sure we'll get to because mm-hmm. it's kind of one of the points of my journey, of our journey around pivoting when you have to pivot at the right point. But to to answer your question, you're absolutely right. So other industries, demand is kind of step one in terms of understanding your production line effectively and planning your capacity based on predicting demand in a 7, 14-day year format. And I think I, I do truly believe it can be done in healthcare. And, you know, I've personally done it in my management consultancy days where we, we were creating demand and capacity models in Excel, which I appreciate Excel is probably not getting 
the moment. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of skim over that point. Nonetheless, the concept is there. And again, going back to my G days with the command center, we we developed there as well. Again, is all the philosophies are using essentially advanced analytics for managing demand and, and kind of planning capacity based on that. So we looked into that as well, the China analytics. So we started our journey by by trying to develop essentially a, I would say, an AI-driven universal time series forecasting algorithm. It's a big ask, what I've just described essentially, but we kind of really, that was our vision and we narrowed that down to predicting ED attendances with the intent of using the same methodology across different points in care. Uh, so be it uh, how to hospital, GP appointments, referrals, or discharges, so on and so forth. And we developed a prototype to predict, uh, predict ED attendances by day of week uh, up to seven days in advance. Now, the reason why we, I guess, have, I wouldn't say we've, we, we have certainly haven't given up on this. We kind of moved away from it temporarily. And the reason being, and to answer your question in a pretty long-winded way, the reason being that, I guess, until 2019, there was enough kind of historical data to start predicting it. And we, we, talk, we did t- talk about this in our, in our previous conversations, Tara. So in terms of how demand is affected with, uh, with COVID-19, also in terms of the, I guess, the drastic landscape changes that are happening in terms of models of care, like your, in, in ED, very specifically, as folk will know, the new 111 model around ED attendances. Now, those are going to impact on, I guess, the historical data. We did try and look to see how we can kind of almost preempt elements of this, essentially, in, in, our, in our algorithm development. But I think where we landed on at the moment is it's, it is doable. But if we're looking at ethical AI and, ethic, and ethically and morally kind of implementing these algorithms in a clinical space, I think where we landed on, and to answer your question, is I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done in order to account for those very two specific changes. So, you know, how does uh, COVID case caseload and impacting admissions and attendances be, uh, go forward from a modeling perspective? And also how how the new models of care, and, and I'm sure more models and more changes in models of care that are coming in the next six to 12 months, how is that going to impact in the activity? And once we kind of understand that, then we can almost account for that in the historical data to then model demand forward. Again, as I said, it's not, I don't think it's impossible at all, but if we kind of come in from, you know, where we're trying to productize something and kind of scale it, there's there's a lot more work that needs to be done in order to move that forward. However, on a very localized front, where we're looking at local situations and local modeling, I, st- I think there's a lot of good that can be done in there where you can look at uh, other industries for inspiration. And I think it's already being done, to, to be honest, in, in a localized setting. The question is kind of sharing that learning across a wider setting and growing and scaling from that point onwards. Does that make sense? Yeah. You talked about, so talk to me when you said ethical, ethical mm-hmm. data. What, why, when thinking about capacity and activity, how could the data ever be inethical? Yeah, unethical? sure. Um, so, Maybe it's the way I look at it, and, and folk are welcome to disagree with this, I guess. But so if, like, really simplifying it, if I if I had an algorithm that said there's going to be a peak in majors this Friday at 1 p.m. within the ED, and in response to that, you bolstered up the physical capacity or workforce in order to react to that incoming demand. And the way it's not like there's a there's a, a pool of resources that are waiting to be allocated, so probably it had to be taken away from somewhere else. So if the algorithm was wrong, which it 
there's no such thing as, I mean, at least at, at the moment, there isn't a 100% accurate algorithm. But if, if it was wrong, then therefore you've effectively taken away some resource away from somewhere else to bolster it. And if that wasn't required, then the deficient resource that would lead to impact on quality of care, clinical care, and patient care at the end of the day. I think that's what I mean by okay. that the responsibility I feel that as innovators we have, even though we're talking about activity and demand capacity, you could argue that it's, we're not actually, it, it, it indirectly affects patient care, I guess, yeah. or directly, depends how you look at it. Yeah. Okay. So one of the reasons, well, the main reason I wanted to get you on is because well, it's called the business of healthcare. And typically I speak to people that are a bit further on in their journey. And I think it's hard. I think we look back with rose-tinted glasses around what would the early days look like. I know a lot of listeners work in the field of health that are interested in business. You started in in January 2020, and then a few months later, like COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> so what went through your mind? Do you do this full-time and do you, or do you still work and have consulting gigs to help with the finances? Mm-hmm. I started the business on the back of my you know, self-funding, but at the same time, um, building a small consultancy business as well. So that was always the intent to have that as a steady cash flow to to pay my bills, to be able to pay the folk that I, um, the one, one individual I employ at the moment and to play the, the contractors and short-term interns I've been fortunate enough to work with. And yes, COVID hit soon after I I started it, which, and I'll be honest, like as with, I'm sure everyone, it was a shock. Uh, there was a very big worry about what have I done? I've left a, a corporate job that was comfortable, uh, that was secure, and I've done one of the most riskiest things in a very risky environment. Once I got over that initial shock, um, kind of reassessed in terms of, you know, be really honest to anyone who's willing to listen, you know, reassessed essentially, you know, what what is the reason I'm doing this? the responsibilities of what I want to implement in the healthcare space and, and move that forward. And, and to be honest, I think I, you know, taking away the, the horribleness of COVID-19 on individuals and the NHS from China analytics business perspective, it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise purely because it gave the space, I guess, at that stage to be able to almost hit the pause button and kind of assess what's going on, how things are changing, try different ideas and almost, you know, the philosophy of fail fast and pivot, we could really do that in a short period of time because of the fact that, that somewhat the external pressures were almost off because from a client perspective, they were obviously rightly so busy yeah. doing, the, doing the job of taking care of patients. So therefore, we could kind of focus on just developing products, testing ideas, seeing if it worked. If it failed, move on, move on to the next one so that we can kind of come out fighting on the other end. So, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does depend on everyone's kind of individual circumstances or, or corporate circumstances, like company circumstances. But I, I personally went into it knowing that the next 12 to 18 months was going to be pretty light on revenue and there's going to be more investment in. So, therefore, it, didn't, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't as bad as I thought. Have you had any moments of doubt in this period? Oh, Definitely. Definitely. I, I would say there's one per week at least. Uh, <laughs> and, and I and I really don't, and I think if you don't have that, then I don't know, maybe it's harsh, but if I, I think that's a good thing because it means that, at least for me, it means that I'm pushing myself. I almost get a little bit worried if I'm having like weeks of confidence because I'm like, hmm. You know, I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll get that at some point when when it's a, a bigger company with a, with a more stable kind of 
product base and revenue base. But at the moment, you know, in this inception phase, I, I, I kind of feel like I should be a little bit nervous and doubting it. It just means I'm questioning, am I heading in the right direction? Am I making the right decisions? So yeah, I certainly think it's a, it's a good thing, but I'm not going to lie to anyone. It's, it certainly happens more than once a week uh, as, as a minimum once a week. So I think that's really important for people to hear. And there's a saying, I don't know who said it, it wasn't me. There is a new devil at every level. So wherever you, no matter how far you go or wherever, how far you rise, there's always, there's always something. Certainly. Yeah. Always something. Absolutely. So you mentioned about failure and that you just said, well, we try it and if we fail and then we just move on. Do you move on when you say it in the reality? Do you move on really quickly? Do you think, oh, well, I've learned something new. And then is that, do you feel good about that? Because you feel like, okay, now I know we do not need to do that or that doesn't work. Or is it, I've invested, you know, weeks Mm. into this and it's not working. (laughs) It's not working. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a good question. It, it, it honestly depends on which element of it I'm failing at. You know, some, some of them were just like crazy ideas sketched on a paper. You ask a, a, a critical mass of your network and then they, they all kind of, say it's a horrible idea and then if it's if it makes sense to you then shut down move on no big deal of course like when you're talking about more developed ideas or propositions where you've invested money and time onto it it, it yeah it definitely stings however i think for me at least the 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 conscious decision to begin with was i was getting nervous that i wasn't failing fast enough, if that makes sense. I, I could kind of see that there were doubts in certain things that I was testing. And I almost kind of wanted to like, okay, I really need to get to a decision point. Are we going to go forward with this? Or are we going to kind of shut this down and move forward? So it, it's, it's, I guess it's all about kind of coming into this with your eyes open. I'm, I'm sure there are individuals and companies where the first idea worked really well, or spot on, and then, you know, you kind of grow into success. But I would love to say that we're, we're that, but no, certainly not. But every, every, I guess maybe fail, I did, I know, I appreciate I use the word fail fast, but every challenge or road bump comes with more lessons, to be honest. So far, that's what, that's what's been happening. And I, and I would say in my actually 15 year long career, I haven't, I think the amount of stuff I've learned in the last nine months, yeah, it's incredible. It is incredible, and I would wouldn't trade that for a while. That's what keeps me going, to be honest. Like that, just that level of, of learning that I can look back on. That that itself has made this journey worthwhile. Everything else has been a bonus, and I'm sure there's a there's a lot more to add on to that. But it's worth knowing that. What lessons have you learned about yourself so far? Like the key ones. So, the first one that comes to mind is feedback, feedback, feedback. So, I mean, I I cannot stress that enough. An idea, a product, a proposition, a problem statement, whatever it is, get user feedback, peer feedback, clinical feedback, your friends, your family, your dog, anyone. Like like, it's, it's, it cannot be understated just, and again, I'm sure folk know this, but it, 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 it can save a lot of time. Sometimes it hurts, of course, you know, you're, you're not human if it doesn't hurt, but it, it, it just means that you kind of ensure that you're, it can, it's really easy to start building a product or developing a proposition in kind of horse blindness mode. It makes sense based on your individual circumstances and your experience. Yeah. By the end of the day, we're, I mean, we're, at least I'm doing this for the client, for the, for the people on the ground, that they're going to be the users at the end of the day. So 
has to has to work for them. So that's that's one for sure. I think I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this to you last time as well. So I I started the journey by being a little bit of a yes person, and what I mean by that is like you know yes to meetings, yes to LinkedIn requests, uh, yes to attending kind of some networking meetings before the lockdown and so on and so forth. And I would kind of say my lesson learned on that one is I might have got I might have kept that going a little bit too long. Uh, there, there's a point where you kind of have to start being you know, once you kind of find your focus and find the direction you're headed, yeah, being a yes person doesn't help because it then takes away from the very thing that you want, which is focus. Yeah. Um, but but I, I would kind of say that the first few months, just kind of saying yes to every opportunity, every conversation will one kind of build the brand awareness, build your network, but more importantly, goes back to the first thing, the feedback, feedback, feedback. You can get as much feedback as you can from all these conversations. Uh, and the final one, which I kind of touched upon, is focus. When you have, when it's either as an individual or with a small team, it's really easy to kind of get excited by the next idea and run to that. Especially as a when you in a startup environment where everything is so fast-paced and exciting, it's really really easy to kind of move on to the next project or next idea. And that's I think that's that's the most dangerous thing that can happen because you know having having that vision and mission and focus and always referring back to that uh, it's 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 key. So I spent. I would say, so I, I started officially kind of properly working in January, but I would say I probably spent about two or three months before that thinking about the the vision and mission, the areas that I wanted to explore and the products that I had ideas. And, and I, I spent all that. So, because I, I knew firsthand from my previous experience that, that you, you need to have like a North Star compass to guide you because of that. It's really easy to kind of just be like, I'm just moving on to this. This is the next big thing. I'm going to solve that problem. And and just kind of forget why you started this to begin with. Again, there's there's a there's a limit to that as well because you you got to also know when to call it a quits and move on. So going back to the pivot point, but just finding that fine balance that, that balance is key. I really like that. I've just finished a session with a general practice, and we were looking at their their mission and their values. And it's the stuff you know, like you just people just want to get on and do the work. And you can do that, but if you don't have a north star, sooner or later. You know that you don't have one. You, you all of a sudden you're all on this different. You're either questioning what are we doing, why are we here? Because I don't feel like we're all on the same page. So I really like the fact that, especially with all of your experience and working in really big organisations, you definitely you understand the the value of doing that prep work. And then one of the things I found is that you know, like you think you've got it, and then something else happens. You're like, no, right, I've got it now. I'm really, I'm crystal clear. And then something else happens and you just build on it and build on it and exactly. build on it. It doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't necessarily change, but the way you articulate it and the way you feel about your work deepens and it gives you that sense of clarity. So I think for people listening, def- I think if you can start on that track, absolutely do so. But you're right. There comes a point when you just have to, you know, it's never going to be crystal. And I think sometimes people are always looking for, they mistake the vision and the values for the strap line. And sometimes it's... It, mm. It's not an, always an external facing branding exercise. It's just yeah. what the business means to you and the impact that you want to create. Exactly. My, my you know, the, the, the mission and vision that I kind of started off with the call was something that came out in a trader process. Certainly the, my first mission and vision was a very wordy, probably I was the only one who could understand it. <laughs> it wasn't slick at all, but you know, the, the important thing was it was something for, for me and my early team to refer to so we knew what we were doing mm. things were getting a little bit tough and they still are but that's not that's not a bad thing yeah, yeah. 
have you had investors starting to approach you and ask what you're doing? So I've I've certainly had in the last nine months, I've certainly had conversations with various investment houses, uh, folk that I know, like I would say the angel network, for lack of a better way of describing them, in terms of the direction I've direction I'm heading, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm I may have mentioned this to you last time, but one of the conscious decisions I made early on when starting up the company was to have a more organic growth model. So again, as I said to you before, it's kind of built on that consulting revenue a little bit of self-funding to drive R&D. And then at the end of it, hopefully the R&D will lead to a product, which the product then leads to actual revenue. And, and the reason for that is it's, you know, there are many models of growing a business, but the, the, the two reasons, I guess, I made that conscious decision. One was, I guess, being a responsible investee, if that's even a word. So I felt like using an arbitrary figure, if, if, you, if I was given 100,000 pounds on day one or 100,000, same 100,000 pounds next year, I kind of felt like I could I could do a lot more, drive a lot more growth with 100,000 pounds next year. Of course, there are different situations for different companies and individuals yeah. and teams where they need the 100,000 pounds to even get the idea off the ground. I'm fortunate enough that I at least had consulting revenue and other sources to kind of at least kick me out, you know, to, to, to start up the process. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, we have certainly had conversations to keep the kind of fires warm, for lack of a better way of describing it. Yeah. Um, but again, it's, 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 I guess, taking me this point personally to find that focus as a company to find that focus and to move forward in the right direction. So hopefully 2021 is the year I look forward to from an investment perspective. Mm. And I think that's another really important lesson for our listeners in the fact that you're still having those conversations. So when you are ready, and I'm sure when you have those conversations, they're asking you things. So you're thinking, right, okay, have I got that in place? I'm not quite sure about that. And it's, it's all good research and preparation for when the time is right and you know where to go rather than just saying, no, I'm not open to investment. I'm not talking to anybody. You're yeah. building those connections. So when you are ready, you can go. Yeah, you know, spot on, it triggers a thought because at, at this stage in the, the pre-seed, seed round of investment, at least my interpretation is investors kind of look look at the individuals, the, the people driving the business as well. as of course the, the, the business and the business model and the plan as well. But so going back to the, the being the yes person, that's helped because it's kind of having those conversations and getting that feedback to influence the direction, everything that the business is taking has certainly been key for sure. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely, yeah, I, I would kind of, I guess, summarize on that point just to say that it's, at least my experience has been it's okay. Of course, go to, go to these meetings prepared and, and uh, know your stuff, but at the same time, it's okay to kind of have speculative conversations and be honest about the position that your organization is in. At least that's been my experience. And if you're, you know, if you're, and that can just you know, build your, build your black book of contacts that you can kind of reach out to in the future. But yeah, I would definitely encourage that. At least and that's, that's been my, and my experience has been positive. So you've set up this business, your consultancy, you've got your consultancy as well. And you've got a young family. Now, this question is usually a question that people ask women. Like, how do you do it all and have a young family? How do you do it all and have a young family? Yeah. So, again, another good question. Again, and one of the things I, I you know, is, it, it is another one of those elements that I rethought really long and hard about practically before I started up Chianalytics. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's, it's definitely tough sometimes. 
I wouldn't say the hours per se, it can get quite intense, regardless of whether it's six hours or, or 18 hours, whatever it might be. It can, it can, it's just a very intense thing running a, running a startup, at least starting a startup. But that's the, the, the fun thing about it is that you're doing, you're hopefully doing what you love. You're doing it for a reason. So therefore it doesn't feel like 18 hours or six hours, even though it's intense, but the, it was, it was quite an important thing. Work-life balance, family, cultures and values, you know, for kind of taking the technology side of it as a company, when I founded it, it was really critical to, to almost build on top of that. One for, for myself, you know, of course, but also I kind of felt like it, it's, I'm not alone in wanting that. So therefore, uh, to enable and creating an organization that kind of values that work-life balance while still being able to drive growth in this. So it's, like I, you know, people talk about lifestyle business where there isn't much growth, is enough to kind of keep you happy as a small team. That's when you can have work-life balance. I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I personally feel that you can have a, a good growth business that's attractive to investors, attractive to yourself, attractive to the market that delivers good stuff while also valuing more, most importantly, valuing people's lives and family and work-life balance and. You know, it's not just a crazy idea that I popped out from somewhere. I've seen it work. So I, I was fortunate enough to kind of work in a, uh, a boutique consultancy before I joined GE. And this is exactly it. It was a family feel team. Everyone had your back. But at the same time, it was very family friendly. And things, little things like starting work a little bit late, you know, so that you can do the school run. If you had to, you know, have, uh, working from home now, it's obviously very much ingrained in most most companies. But working from home was seen as an absolutely valid thing in order to kind of manage childcare priorities, so on and so forth. So I've seen it work while, you know, that business got acquired by GE. So clearly, clearly it can be, it, it can be done. So for me, when, when kind of thinking about the principles, the values of Chinalytics, that, that was kind of fundamental. You know, I, I call it the, the, the Chai family, which is very small now, but hopefully grows bigger. But essentially, it's, it's all about respecting and looking after each other. And really simple things I've implemented as well around, you know, Friday afternoons are training and development time. So that means that, well, as it says on the tin, this is to kind of focus on your own personal development and your professional development. But that also means that you kind of enable that to kind of wind down to the weekend, effectively, yeah. rather than it being like going to madly catch up and send emails before 5 p.m., we have our weekly stand-ups, our beginning of the week stand-ups and meetings on Tuesday rather than Monday. So you kind of have the Monday to recoup and check on emails and reply back to folk and plan for the week. So it's it's kind of ramping up to the week. So it gives you a kind of optimal Tuesday to Thursday to Friday morning if you want to kind of go specifically to that point. And, and most importantly, and it's worked, it's worked so far, uh, weekends are protected. You know, I, I live by that rule myself. You know, I try to lead by example. Now, certainly there are there are days where I've had to break it, but I'm proud to say that that's the, in the minority. So I have two phones by design, one for work and one for yeah, my work phone is upstairs. You know, it's in, in the it's in the office. I barely look at it or never look at it over the weekend and don't reply to emails over the weekend. And this again, I'm you know, trying not to kind of be dictatorial about ways of working. Everyone has their own personal style, yeah. but it's certainly something I encourage just to get the best out of the team. So you mentioned you've got one employee. When did you realize you needed help? The, the, the one employee is someone I started with, essentially. So it's, a, it's a, being totally transparent. It's part-time at the moment. So that that's 
Yeah, that's that's how it's working for the business at the moment. In terms of the other resources that that have kept us going, uh, the consultancy business is run as a, an associate model. So, as folks who are familiar with that model know, it's people in my network who themselves have their company, but we kind of like help each other out by by creating a network of projects, mm-hmm. essentially people you trust. And so that's how that's been going. Uh, on the on the product development side, it's been a combination of independent pr- contractors, the part-time data scientists, and and some short-term interest, and myself, of course, and yeah. myself putting in putting in the hard work to do it. But I, I would say to answer your question, it's it's about now. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't I don't know whether to focus on the, the nine-month time window, or it, it's it's more about yeah, it's it, it's it's the point now where where things are starting to pile up, like legal documents, various business development meetings, processes, internal processes, development processes, so on and so forth, are starting to pile up. So it's about now, I would say, I'm, I'm realizing that more, more help is, is certainly needed in, in driving the business forward. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because, at least in this, in, for folk who I'm sure a lot of people kind of read around startups and technology startups in particular, and the common thread across that is about it's about how you grow. Do you do you accelerate growth by, you know, borrowing and getting investment and getting the team, and therefore you have the resources to then drive the growth, or do you almost get commitment to the risk adverse way? I guess is to get commitment, and then you, so you know, I, I win a big one million pound contract. I know it's coming in three months, and then and then hire people to kind of fill that contract. Yeah. And it's 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 interesting because it. I don't know what the right answer is now. I probably the the the, the approach that we've taken at China Analytics has been somewhere in the middle. I would say yeah. a bit of personal financing and and some short term loans to kind of make payroll and to pay the independent contractors while getting the revenue in. Yeah. But I I think now it's probably the decision point for me. And I wish I had a clear answer now. But the, the now it's probably the decision point for me around. Do I take the first approach that I said, which is essentially kind of take the risk and grow the team bigger than it is now, uh, in order to drive growth, or not? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's like how do you manage your own demand and capacity? I, and yeah. I think it's one of those ones where, yeah, you either sometimes are how it's, we're saying the same, but how in my language, right? It's do you hire before you're ready, knowing that you're going to need the support, or do you wait for the million pound contract and then think right? all hands on deck and then you're frantically recruiting and trying to bring people in. I think I've hired before I'm ready, but then I get scared. Sure. And I, I think I did a podcast recently. I, I think I did a podcast and it was around, oh, it was a blog from NHS Confederation seeing where I talked about staff as an investment mm. rather than an expense. And I think if I'd had the mindset that it was an investment I wouldn't have got scared. You can kind of self-sabotage yeah, sure. when you do things out of, you know, like fear and like you're, you, you have to count every penny, but there is a way to do it where you're not sabotaging yourself and mm. stingy and thinking, ah, oh, I think there's a mindset around how you grow, being flexible. And I think having people part-time, like I started off with, yeah. with a, a virtual assistant and then mm. part-time because then you have to learn how to manage people. It's not, yeah. And then the policies and all of that stuff and building the culture. So Absolutely. I think having part-time employees is, is a great, it's a great test for both of you. 
Absolutely. I mean, I've seen I've seen both models work and fail. I mean, my co- in my corporate life, folk who kind of hire heavily and then they, and then uh, in the knowing that there will be revenue coming in, hoping that there'll be revenue coming in, and there'll be huge redundancy rounds. Or the other way around, where you have a completely overstretched team because you haven't hired enough, but yeah. you want too much business. And well, may, maybe check in with me again in three months. But I think my my hunch, <laughs> my hunch now, based on the last nine months, which I appreciate is not a long time is I think there's a phased approach here. So you kind of start the process, maybe the first, maybe first 12 months with you use the, you hire with the knowing when revenue is going to come in. So don't hire yet essentially. So, so but fill the gap with like either part-time employees that we've done or, or um, internships or contractors, of course, you know, subcontracting the work. But I think, so personally now um, in China analytics and, and probably wider. So 12, I think 12 months onwards is, is where you'd want to look into the you know, higher yeah. in order to drive growth. And that's probably, that's, that's, I think where, where we're headed now, if I'm honest. And I think this is uh, fantastic to remind people about internships and apprenticeships. Yes. Yeah. So there is something where you all want the finished article and you just want somebody to hit the ground running, yeah. but there is immense satisfaction and it feels like it's you growing it together when you take somebody and you develop them. And you know, I think if you do that knowing they're not going to stay forever, it could be fantastic because you're learning as much from them as yeah. they are from you. Yeah, I think I, you, you're spot on on that front. I mean, I cannot thank the, the folk who've been in, interns with China Analytics the last nine months. I cannot thank them enough because it's you know, it's their valuable time. It's it's obviously a two way process. They they get experience out of it. When while I also get the outputs uh, and growth, and and to be honest, quite a lot of lessons learned from those individuals as well. Because mm. experience, yes, is definitely key to to uh, to to developing a team for sure. But then sometimes you have that fresh perspective as well that can, you know, some of the ideas I gotten from my my interns in the last nine months have been quite critical for the growth. And they, they've known that. I've, I've told them that, of course. And the hope for me is that the individuals will come back in the future as employees. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess selfishly from a child analytics perspective, I'm, I'm building my future pool of employees. Yeah. But I guess unselfishly, it's, it's you know, the pay it forward karma kind of model, right? Like it's develop folk in the world and eventually they, you know, they'll, they'll come back to you. I mean, I yeah. truly believe in that. I truly believe in that model. So to wrap up, I want to ask you some quick fire questions. They're just fun, silly uh, questions. Don't overthink them. Okay. What is your worst habit? Uh, I fidget in my chair. If that's if that's a thing, so I kind of <laughs> you can see it. So for this probably can't see it, but I've been just spinning around and fidgeting, okay. which yeah, I'll say that's my worst habit. A really lame one, but it is. My worst <laughs> what What are your three kind of most favorite apps on your phone? The uh, my fitness pal. The weather app, AccuWeather, to be precise. It's your favorite. Uh, yeah, it's my favorite. I love the weather. I love, I love, I mean, come on, I got it. I got a technology data startup. <laughs> like data. Um, so, yeah. uh, AccuWeather and, um, and Instagram. What is a mistake people often uh, make about you? Ooh. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> okay. Next. How do you get in the way of your own success? Overthinking certainly overthinking it and, and not just doing an iterative trial and error approach to things. What book have you recently read um, that you would recommend? 
I a pretty it's an old book, but it's Steve Jobs' autobiography. Okay. Um, I certainly will recommend that in terms of leadership philosophies and somewhat things not to do as well. <laughs> um, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually wanted to be a, uh, answer, uh, a fighter pilot, fighter jet pilot. Yeah. Okay. And if you could have a superpower, which one would you choose? Flying for sure. Cool. This is one of the questions that my wife asked me when we were dating. One of our ah. cliche date questions. What did she say? What, what was her superpower? Invisibility, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. If people want to find out more about you and try analytics, where can they go? Yes, please reach out to me on the first instance or look me up on LinkedIn. So Ram Rajaraman or my email is ram.rajaraman at chaianalytics.com. So anyone's welcome. Doors open. Thank you so much, Ram. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you really like it, it would be great if you left us an iTunes, a five star rating and review. And I will see you in the next episode. 